Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, John and Matt. And today we're taking on a tough topic that was inspired in part by a blog I recently uh, wrote on the idea of the cosmic Christ and a particular metaphor that I used, and whether it was adequate or inadequate, the idea is that how is it that Christianity intersects with culture, preserving that which is good, and in some way critiquing the violence inherent in cultures. And of course, the background of this is that we are facing a colonial Christianity, a Constantinian Christianity, in which Christianity has been conjoined to the state, and in which, in fact, the Christian critique has often failed. And what we get then is a alternative religion that is often, in the American context, you know, we have the creation, I think, of a kind of patriotic religion. And so the the discussion is revolving around this issue and an attempt. We're actually headed somewhere, and that is an attempt to in some way say, how is it that Christianity can intersect with a particular people, a particular culture, and offer critique and simultaneous preservation? And what I suggested is that if we take as an illustration the role of the cosmic Christ, and put what da Vinci was doing with the Vitruvian man, you know, the man that is, in in a sense, the divine, the bringing together of the divine, the circle, the logic, the in- coherence of things, with the square, with the material, and the earthly. And, of course, what the Enlightenment thinkers were considering was that this was a kind of anthropocentric accomplishment. And what I suggested was that putting Christ in place of the Vitruvian man, in fact, accomplishes, in a sense, metaphorically, a preservation and a critique, that what was wrong with the Enlightenment was its anthropocentric abstractions, but what is correct about the Enlightenment is a kind of unifying cosmic understanding two critiques i think one is more important than the other and i just had the thought it's sort of a terrifying to myself because it's such a lutheran thought but in a way i could thinking about christ in place of the vitruvian man as being an understanding or a way into thinking about the cosmic christ is almost in what would we're going to use lutheran terms would be like an illegitimate theology of glory of course luther thought all theologies of glory were illegitimate but what i mean by that is I'm afraid that because of the way da Vinci is considering what the Vitruvian man is, which is he goes out and he measures male bodies. I think he goes to Venice. So he he gets together some men and he measures their bodies. And then he begins this illustration based on taking those measurements and developing ratios. So in my mind, it's already a step back from actually enfleshed human beings that we're stepping backwards into abstract mathematics. And he comes up with a Vitruvian man, which is somebody in motion, a human body in motion. But it is in some sense perfect in the sense that it's based on perfect ratios 
human body and not an individual human person. And that if we say, well, that's that's how a way of understanding Christ. I think actually the way we understand Christ is that in and through Christ's suffering for the least of the least of us, he is making a claim on human bodies in the way that they can be saved and redeemed even through his own body. So the the title of Copeland's book, I think, is good here, Enfleshing Freedom. If we think about salvation as a metaphor for freedom, or rather salvation is freedom understood in the correct sense, which isn't the freedom of options or the ability to choose arbitrary choices, which is what the Enlightenment is instantiating in a lot of ways, but rather freedom is to be freed from sin and death, to be able to choose God single-mindedly, to grow in union with God. The, the way Christ does this is by making a claim on our embodied realities. And for her, she thinks the way to enter into that conversation is to talk about the embodied realities of black women in slavery. Because in and through the way they begin to reclaim their bodies through Christianity, if it is the, that actually they understand Christian freedom, or they understand what it means to be freed, to have a relationship with God that extends to our relationships with other people in an embodied sense, in a way that perhaps we're likely to miss. What's also the way that I approached this project is to say that a part of our problem, uh, in as much as we've been influenced by what has come to be called nominalism or the Via Moderna, we live in as if, and this is this is a definition for something William Desmond says, we live as if you know, we're in a finite universe. And so that would also be my question, I guess, I, I would push even against the claim that da Vinci had the idea that the, a cosmos is necessarily connected, or is it actually the case that they've already shifted towards thinking about a universe that could be defined? A, and the only shift there is that um, it's really a semantic shift. But in traditional Christianity, when we think of the cosmos, we think about the cosmic body of Christ or Christ is the head of this thing that is the cosmos, that uh, God is then the primary cause and the final cause. So that God doesn't stand at a distance from the cosmos in the sense that God is merely the uh, first efficient cause but rather God is necessarily the one who is, you know, in a different category of existence in some sense that the cosmos exists within, that we live and move and have our being within. The shift to a universe is to make all things finite and then to think of, you know, even if you're thinking of an infinite universe, at that point what's happened is that all things in existence are ranked the same. And so uh, the turn towards thinking that, you know, mathematical ratios corresponding to the human body could make sense of the divine and the human. I almost wonder if we've already made that shift, but that would be another point. What I think the problem is with that move, though, is the way then that we think about truth. So there's, you know, of necessity, a contextualization then, so that when we would talk about bodies, we would be talking about individual things, not things that would participate in these universals. The striking move that Copeland is making is to say, no, we don't need to retreat from talking about individual stories of embodied people, because we know that, because it's not that our contextual theology is somehow going to miss the larger picture, or that we're not going to any longer be able to have discussions about the Trinity in an orthodox fashion, which is always the danger, I think, 
with the textual theology. You can find a quote from her. She talks about the risk that we run. Indeed, any formulation of theological anthropology that takes body and body marks seriously risks absolutizing or fetishizing what can be seen, race and sex, constructed gender, represented sexuality, expressed culture, and regulated social order. Moreover, such attention to concrete and specific nonetheless accidental characteristics also risks fragmenting the human being. But what makes such a risk imperative is the location and condition of bodies in an empire. What makes such risk obligatory is the, that the body of Jesus of Nazareth, the word made flesh, was subjugated in an empire. So she sees that there is a real danger in turning to a contextual theology and thinking of um, you know, humanity in the sense of individual humans, because we might miss the fact that we're actually participating in these larger categories. Ultimately, we participate in a cause, this is your point, we participate in a cosmos that uh, is ontologically participatory in God. Uh, but she says, why is this necessary? It's because the way that God comes into the world is through a marked body that is marked by all of these categories that I, I take we're going to discuss in this podcast. So I think there's two ways of coming at this. And perhaps, uh, again, that was my Luther move to say, one may be a theology of glory that in the end doesn't get us to where we need to be. And the other is to take Christ seriously um, in the sense of his marked and incarnate body. And that then isn't to turn our turn away from thinking in terms of a participatory ontology or a cosmos that is ordered in such a way that it, everything is integrated into everything else, but rather by turning towards bodies, um, we take both things seriously and we'll then understand what it truly means to have salvation as freedom. And the critique is that what you're getting in the Enlightenment thought but not just Enlightenment thought, what you're getting in a theological understanding that Luther is precisely critiquing is this notion of a universality that in some way floats above the, the cross of Christ in a practical incarnate sense. In other words, we, can't, we even came to value a truth that in some way floated above history, an abstraction. And theologically, the eternal truths came to dominate the incarnate truth of Christ. And what that means on the ground is individuals of lesser mm -hmm. importance, black women, slaves, Native Americans, that what that sort of thought tends to do is to just, it, it, it can be violent because in some way the, these universal truths don't count right. them in. And that is captured in the Vitruvian right. man, a white male model that in, in a way he is supposed to be the perfect man. But of course, actually, it, it, many think it's Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. There's the problem. We agree on the problem, right? Yep, that's right. So I think that a way of getting at that, um, and this is Copeland's reference to this, but it's Lonergan's thought. And so uh, I, th I hope this will make this more concrete is to say, of course, that when we do theology, we do it from a specific horizon, right? So there would be a way that the horizon uh, from which we stand, this is just the field of vision from our approximate point uh, in time and space, is to be able to say, oh, the Vitruvian man works for us. But the question then becomes, well, would that work from the horizon of a black person 
that even, you know, what it's been over well over 100 years, uh, emancipation from slavery are still suffering uh, or still being subjugated and oppressed by white men in power, basically, is one way of looking at that. And then the other subset to that is that because of our horizon, we will have foundational categories of our thought. And I think what Copeland's trying to do and what the, the critique is essentially is to say, well, let's understand what our horizon is and then be able to address whether or not the foundational categories of our thought, which, you know, uh, culturally and theologically could be what is freedom, what what is whiteness, what is race, these kind of questions. How are we going to respond to our historical setting right now? And we can manipulate or we can judge and critique those things, even if we obviously can't escape a horizon. It's not that I have grand attachment to my illustration, but let me, in an attempt to, to make this discussion concrete, defend my illustration. And that is that what I suggested is that what we need to do is to put Christ in place of the Vitruvian man. And I, I don't mean this just simply in the case of Enlightenment culture, but what I was, what I'm trying to do, or in the sense of a cosmic Christ, this is not something we simply do in the case of the Vitruvian man, but this is what we in some way need to do always as Christianity comes into contact with culture. That is that the ideals that a culture produces, they may in fact cohere in Christ. But in putting them in the person and body and historical incarnate Christ, there is the sense that the ideas are completed, the violence is undone, and we're no longer looking at a white European male, but we're looking at an oriental brown body of Jesus. That is, that putting Christ in place of the Vitruvian man may be illustrative of what always needs to happen, that there is a preservation in part, but a critique and an undoing of that which is inherently violent in any particular culture. I think you could do the same thing. In other words, what you get in a European Christianity, whether it's Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, whatever, in other words, what you get in the received understanding are saints that tend to be of a particular cultural caste and order, teachings that then are handed down through a particular Constantinian or nationalistic flow of thought. What we always need to do is simply displace those cultural orders that would mediate Christianity to us, like the Enlightenment was mediated by particular ideas, and we need to funnel all of those ideas, critique and preservation, through the person and work of Christ, so that we in some way relinquish and preserve. One of those driving ideas of modernity um, or of the Enlightenment of, is, of course, the idea of capitalism. Right. And so I kind of want to bring that into this discussion for the reason that Paul, I think, is narrating a Christian understanding of what a human body is uh, in and through the incarnation of Christ. But of course, that's not the narrative of modernity. Right. Uh, the, the narrative of modernity is that human bodies are commodities first and foremost. And so the just awful history that John, you know, began to narrate at the beginning of the podcast of of black women 
who were forced and foremost, I mean, they were commodities, right? And so this really is still happening with the sex trafficking uh, trade. And you guys probably understand this, but the advantage of trafficking in humans instead of, say, drugs, is that with drugs, you have a finite sort of, you know, resource, right? I mean, eventually you're going to run out of heroin or, and you're going to have to buy more, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to run out of cocaine and then you have to go back to your distributor and buy more. But of course, with a human body, a human body can just be used over and over and over again without having to purchase it a second time. And so what I think we're describing is a great evil. I don't just mean with, you know, uh, the sex trafficking problem, which of course is a great evil. But what we're describing is I think that in part is the church's complicity with capitalism in ways that are just horrifying as I'm just listening to all of this. These things took place with the rise of modernity, with the rise of, uh, well, just America, came this sort of form of capitalism that is using black bodies uh, or the powerless or the poor for nothing more than their own profit and power. For the church to, in any way, you know, this is the thing to, to kind of make this a little bit more concrete, at least for me, um, is that what Paul is narrating, and I think rightly so with the cosmic Christ, is that while well, Jesus was a peasant Jew, a uh, brown Jew, who didn't own anything, the clothes on his back sort of thing, and he even lost that at the end. But the church, though, in many ways, has wed itself to capitalism and to power, which, of course, are, in capitalism and power, are, of course, go hand in hand with things like racism, poverty, militarism, materialism, these things that great men like Dr. King just constantly poured and, and, and railed against. We can get into a little bit of that stuff, but does that have a bearing on uh, sort of making the, the conversation a little bit more concrete for Paul, what you were getting at in terms of trying to narrate one history over and against the the narrative of modernity, which basically boils down to human beings are a tool in the hand of the master to make them money and to secure their power. It's a very, very different story. The evil we're faced with is capitalism, but we all we know that there's got to be a larger category, right? Because this was happening much longer before modernity, or happening before capitalism uh, was really an economic structure within our societies. And I think it's the way empire works, right? That's right. That legacy gets privileged as a form of eternal life that would be grasped in and through having power and sacrificing the other. And so I think the necessary step is when we're talking about the cosmic Christ is to realize that we can't talk about the cosmic Christ apart from the mystical body of Christ, which is to simply say that when we talk about the cosmic Christ, perhaps the best window into that or the best portal into that conversation is to in and through the mystical body of Christ, which is to say the people of Christ. And uh, in as much as John tells us in his, this is really how the gospels work, right? How do we get to know Jesus? Well, we don't get to know Jesus by his expressions of power alone, but his expressions of, of power, what we would call power, is actually always in and through his interactions or relational interactions with the poor and the oppressed. Okay. So that's why I guess I, I'm just determined to say that a more legitimate way of talking about the cosmic Christ is to begin by talking about those who have suffered marks upon their body that would commoditize their bodies, that would some way try to dehumanize them in and through making their bodies a 
a resource rather than, and this is Copeland's point, that our bodies are actually sacramental in the sense that it is in our bodies that we encounter the divine. So it is to take that away from somebody or to attempt to deface that, to take that away from somebody that is, I think, at the root uh, of all of these problems. I'm reading, his name is David Truer. He's a Native American and it's called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee, giving a very broad picture of the colonization. And it ties in exactly to what Matt is saying. He's saying that we, we can tell the story in many ways, but actually the truth of the story is always that it was greed. That the original Columbus's whole point, he really wasn't interested in proving the world was round. He really wasn't that interested in evangelism. In fact, he preferred that the natives not become Christians because in some way that would legitimize their humanity. Same thing happens in slavery. Yeah, yeah, that, that you don't want the slaves to embrace Christianity. Oh, right. And so his point is, and he just narrates it all the way through, up to and including the entry of the Americans that we often tell as a kind of religious story that the pietists and the Quakers and the those who, who had been persecuted in England and Europe. But his point is, yeah, but actually when they, they're coming to America, it is still, it is that they're going to occupy property and that there is an inherent greed in the entire movement. So I'm reading Schopenhauer right now, and it strikes me that Schopenhauer is getting to the root of this problem in a way, but his answer is, is so deficient. He builds the argument, and of course this is before modern psychology, so this would have all been groundbreaking. He builds the argument that what a human being, what an individual is, the thing in itself, is ultimately desire. And that this desire arises from the sense that we know we, we lack being, that it gets in very concrete ways, but uh, the way that usually plays out with our interactions with other people is that we know that we there is we're lacking being, so we can somehow extract that from the other. And he thinks the answer uh, is resignation. So it's a resignation from desire, and if you can resign yourself from desire, from this need to fulfill this lacking in oneself, then you can encounter the other as a thing in themselves and actually understand that they're beautiful and they're true and they're good. But I think with Christianity, we have a much better answer because isn't this what we're describing? That greed, lust, desire, this is what's driving this machine that just eats up anybody who is has less power or ability to defend themselves from our own need or lack that we think we de well we desire life and the way we that gets played out is that we desire wealth power and success and then the way that's expressed or unleashed on other bodies is in and through lust and greed and malice uh, jealousy destruction that uh, what christianity is saying is that in some way by god becoming human we no longer have to relate to one another from this position of illegitimate desire because God is, in the true sense, infinite good, infinite truth, infinite beauty, such that God fulfills all of our lacks and that we should be able to have uh, true relationships. I think this is where Jesus is key. This is what Jesus is continually demonstrating by going out to those who are poor or who are oppressed and in some way would be seen as a drain. You know, I mean, that's the danger, right? If you're a Pharisee or if you're in power and you're caught with one of these people who are sort of at the, the bottom of society, that somehow they will usurp from you 
your your being that makes you all that you are a religious leader a teacher somebody that's well respected that somehow they usurp that respectability but jesus seems to say well no in as much as uh, the body of christ is going to be manifest this is the mystical body of christ in humanity we don't actually have this lack that you have an abundance so that when you give of yourself or when you relate to another human being as truly other not something that's going to fulfill this lack within yourself what the result of that isn't some kind of net loss from yourself but it's a clear abundance for both people and this abundance we would call growing in love growing i mean this i think aquinas says something along the lines that true charity is friendship with god to be able to love one another is to increase in friendship with god and i think that's we're describing two ways of understanding humanity or relations with humanity, what do we do then uh, when we encounter people that are other than us? And I think that's a clear way about it that, uh, you know, Dr. King's getting at, or somebody in the position of slavery can readily understand more so than somebody who has the illusion that they have power. And partly what we would dispossess people of in dispossessing them of a significant identity of value and of the things that are valuable about them of course what we would dispossess them of is some sort of is their cultural identity or the stories that they have in which they have an identity that's right because we would try to dehumanize that we would yes that that's their stories their religion their understanding of who they are what happens in colonialism, what happens in enslaving people, what happens with, in the history uh, with women even, not just black women, is that there is a dispossession then of uh, all that would uh, pertain to their value. What I'm saying is that in incorporation of people into the church, there can't simply be a crushing of all that constitutes them as human. And I mean their religion, and I don't. I'm not arguing for some sort of syncretism here, in a whole embodied mm-hmm. sense. The, That's but right. I'm also not arguing for a crushing of that identity that comes to them. And religion may be the wrong word because I don't think people actually think of their identity and their religion apart from mm-hmm. one another. And that was partly what again in the Vitruvian man, in some way we need to put at the center of things in Christ the incorporation of all that makes a people that gives them Mm -hmm. their identity. And part of what gives them their identity, I think, and and we're used to talking about this more in terms of male, female, master, slave, you know, Jew, Gentile, but also rich and poor. Right. That, that really is a way that Jesus talks about what human beings uh, sort of uh, how they identify as, as rich or as poor. My, my concern, I guess, is for whatever we're going to do to incorporate people into the church. That The problem, though, becomes whenever we, I think, wed ourselves to mm-hmm. systems of power uh, and of money that don't really allow us to identify with with the poor because the poor in some way becomes a threat to church growth or or whatever else exactly right if i remember correctly this is one of copeland's points as well so it's not original in as much in say western society at large racism is no longer a uh it's not really any longer plausible 
to be an out-and-out racist in the same way people were 100 years ago. Not to say that we're actually any less racist, but the way that you can continue to instantiate a narrative of you know, power for the few is now through you know, the economic differences of these communities. And, oh, wouldn't you know, we still have all sorts of policies. I mean, if you're talking from the perspective of uh, somebody from the United States, we have all sorts of policies enacted that keep people who have historically been marginalized or oppressed because of race, we keep them now poor and marginalized because of a wealth difference. And it's not even just limited to communities in the United States, but because of the way that the United States sees itself in the world and trying to keep balances of power and try, you know, uh, that we do this in other countries as well, so that we'll destabilize, we're more likely in the U.S. to destabilize the government's of countries with brown or black people than, and work with countries with people of lighter skin. And this just goes on and on and on. And what's interesting about that is it, you can just see where the ideologies are in the background for these things that we have taken a certain kind of people that we consider um, are truly people and all these other people, we need to show the right way to live or to do democracy. But what, you know, democracy for them doesn't really look like democracy for us, <laughs> meaning uh, we don't usually open other people's up to economic growth and perceived pos- prosperity, even though we know that's a myth here too. But we're much more upfront about keeping their democracies in some way unstable. So that as soon as they begin to actually work, we're going to go blow somebody up <laughs> in their country and, and cause problems. Someone like Noam Chomsky is just going to argue that, well, we just don't live in a democracy anyways. You know, certainly not. If yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you know so that then you have it. So Michelle Alexander writes the new Jim Crow book, which is fantastic, you know, where she's basically saying that, well, the, the other way that we go ahead and commodify black bodies is we put them in prison uh, that are privately owned. Right. You know, where they're making goods, you know, they're making jeans and yep. things like this. And, and the disparity between, you know... What they're doing is making somebody rich. Well, that's exactly right. And so, and if you think about, you know, Chomsky talks about this as well, the disparity between the laws for, you know, quote-unquote ghetto drugs like crack, cocaine, or mandatory mm-hmm. minimums for just the possession of crack cocaine, the, the ratio, the sentencing ratio is something like 100 to 1, or at least it was at one point, to drugs like, you know, sort of white suburban drugs like cocaine, where the sentencing guidelines are just completely different for drugs that are more popular in the black communities than drugs that are more popular in the in the white communities. And then and you see all this as a sort of form of propaganda, I think, that, you know, the war on drugs is the way that we talked about it in the 80s, whenever it was the black, you know, crack uh, epidemic. But whenever white people started getting hooked on Oxycontin, we started to change the the rhetoric and the way that we talked about it as the opioid crisis, you know. Mm-hmm. And so the, epidemic, the, yeah, the opioid epidemic, yeah. right? It's in the same way we would talk about like the flu. <laughs> right, that's right. Yeah, and, and so there there really are kind of subtle ways that this propaganda works, and I and I really mean that, you know, to use that word because that's what I think that a lot of this is. I mean, the dirty little secret is is that capitalism doesn't want us to narrate uh, as Christians the history of capitalism in the way that we're doing right now right that's the last thing that they want 
That's right. Say, That's right. Oh, well, what capitalism is really built on is greed and the commodification of powerless poor bodies to, to, to sort of perpetuate the power uh, rich, you know, usually white people that were willing to, you know, aggressively uh, attack other countries and things like that to spread our, our power, you know, whether it's just in South America or in the Middle East and to kill, you know, women and children and uh, poor to their empire. And so these things are all intimately tied together. And again, I'll just hit this again. As a Christian, these things should horrify yeah. us. Uh, these, the, And so rather than just in any way sort of being like, oh, well, that's just the way it is or being complicit, actually, we need to develop the sort of moral sensibility to be able to talk about these issues in a way where we're genuinely horrified to the point where we um, question our own participation in these systems of violence and oppression and try to creatively come up with ideas to combat these systems and to me. That's what King, you know, Dr. King talked about. Justice is what love looks like in public. That's right. That's right. I'm reading, you know, The Radical King, which is uh, Cornell West. You know, he edited it and does the introduction. If I could recommend any book, if you want to learn more about the great Dr. Martin Luther King, it would be The Radical King. I think that King was the greatest American that ever lived. I think that he was uh, one of the most courageous American Christians, maybe the most courageous American Christian. Mm-hmm. that I, I know of because, and he was just hated at the end of his life because they were saying, hey, Dr. King, stay in your own lane. You're supposed to be doing the civil rights thing. You're not supposed to be talking about, you know, critiquing capitalism or poverty or militarism. Dr. King had the, the understanding and the insight to be able to say, well, these things are all intimately related. The people who are being sent to the front lines in Vietnam are black, bot, poor black bodies. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, right. And so That's he was right. able to put these things together in such a way where, you know, his approval rating towards the end of his life was just abysmal. I mean, he was just, you know, uh, everyone <laughs> sort of, you know, was against him when he started talking about, you know, there, there needs to be more of a distribution of wealth. His last sermon was going to be the day that he died. You know, he phoned Ebenezer Baptist Church with his the, the, the title of his sermon, which was Why America May Go to Hell. And it was for the the reasons that we've been talking about. And of course, Dr. King is t- speaking this word to the church. That's right. Because if the church is going to wed itself to a sort of American exceptionalism, then that form of civil religion or whatever it is for Dr. King was on its way to hell. So if it was a church that was linked with racism or, you know, or sort of the oppression of the poor or militarism or even of materialism, it was intimately linked with profound evil. And Dr. King was calling the church out of that evil. And the United States government knew this, of course. I mean, the FBI uh, called him the most dangerous man in America. Mm -hmm. You know, they understood very well what King was doing whenever he said, well, wait a second, racism and the oppression of poor people and militarism and materialism, in other words, capitalism, these things are all inextricably sort of linked together in a monstrous, terrible way uh, that the church is the only really voice of the the embodied Christ, you know, the, 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 you know, the cosmic Christ becoming truly human, loving the poor. I mean, you know, Luke, uh, this is the other thing that we talked about with, uh, with Dr. Hart, uh, David Bentley Hart's actually quite good on this issue of, of uh, economics, I think. He talks about just the harsh critique that Jesus brings to the rich and saying, you know, well, in Luke, you know, he just says, well, woe to the rich for you have already received your consolation. There are sort of dire warnings for religious people who participate 
in systems of economic injustice and oppression. So, yeah, Matt, that's great. So I think we can link this back to our previous conversation too. I mean, the one in the previous podcast, because what you're saying uh, and what Martin Luther King Jr. definitely understood is that any true Christianity manifests the kingdom of God, and that is a huge threat to the kingdoms of this world. And I think what is what has happened or what has happened in Western Christianity, and we can call it nominal, you can call it whatever you want, I don't really care, the via moderna, nominalism, modernity, whatever, Protestantism for sure. The One of the key doctrines of Protestantism is, of course, that justification by faith only is something that occurs only in the mind of God. And uh, what Christians had always believed before that, and I think what a lot of Christians at the grassroots level still fundamentally understand is that no there is no such thing as justice in the mind of god if there's not also justice in reality that when we talk about justification god making things right that has a real connection to our everyday lives and to the lives of those people who are most oppressed i mean that's really the key message of dr king right he got that and then he realized that's what christianity was all about and it wasn't very long before anybody with any kind of power whether it was economic or you know in terms of power over people's bodies perceived him as a true threat that's right and I think that, you know, this is key. And I think that's why when if we're going to talk about the cosmic Christ, which we ought to, you can't talk about the cosmic Christ apart from the mystical body of Christ, which is to say those masses of Christians that Jesus is making a difference in their lives. And then they become a threat to anybody who or anything you might even say uh, that is using power illegitimately to commoditize or control human bodies. That's right, because as soon as we start talking about the cosmic Christ, what we're also saying is the king of the universe, you know, yes. who is over and against you know, the, the kings of this world yep. that exercise their dominion and authority in and through violence and oppression. That's right. And so these things are, so I think that you really, I mean, Jesus could not be more clear when he says you cannot serve both God and mammon. The, the book that's come out recently, The Enchantments of Mammon, which is actually also quite good. I haven't gotten through it because it's like, you know, a thousand pages long. But this is the case there too, is that uh, he's making the case uh, that he, it goes back to this idea of sort of the, the narrative of uh, of capitalism. And he's actually saying that, you know, the old way is Max Weber's way of thinking was, you know, sort of the disenchantments of, uh, of capitalism. But he's actually saying, no, actually, Mammon has its enchantments. And and what I'm afraid of yep, is yep. that it's, you know, those enchantments are sort of linked in the Christian world oftentimes with whatever you want to call the health and wealth gospel of American exceptionalism. And here's the thing, I'm not anti-American and neither was Dr. King. Mm-hmm. I think that the greatest Patriots are the the dissenters, you know, the people who are willing to say, hey, America needs to do better, you know, and especially if we're going to walk around here calling ourselves a Christian nation. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) I guess the the question is the degree, you know, when you say you're not anti-American or that you're pro-American, of course, what we're describing is not a place or a people, but an ideal. And the question we have to ask ourselves is if this ideal is in fact so interwoven with what amounts to a counter kingdom, a religion that was purposely woven in that way by the founding fathers. These guys were not innocent. They were thoroughly religious and thoroughly not Christian. In other words, they understood that, that they were creating a civic religion. That 
in many of their minds was precisely what they set out to do. And they succeeded. That's right. They succeeded. We have uh, our fathers, you know, we have our songs, you have our liturgies. But I would say that part of what I love about Forging Plowshares is, is that it's a peaceful, a peaceable kingdom. That's, that's what you're talking about. I mean, Dr. King was, you know, didn't have any illusions. He said that the United States was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And, you know, Chomsky comes along and other people and say this, says the same thing. And so it's not to say that we're anti-American, but we are profoundly anti-evil. <laughs> and anti- yeah, well, <laughs> it's, you know, it's to ask the question, what are you, and this, Paul, you were saying earlier, like what we don't want to do or what Christianity does not do is to strip away the identity of individuals. And so this is like probably my final pushback, but it's just going to bring us full circle uh, against the idea of, I, I really don't think that the Vitruvian man is the right way to get at this. And this is why, because when we think about humanity in any way that is less than our enfleshed stories and our enfleshed reality and experience of uh, each other and God in our lives, that we'll, we'll miss this. And it's to say, well, what is America? What does it mean to be anti-American or pro-American? Well, you're right. If you think about it at the level of ideology, then, well, for one, it becomes foolish if you're a Christian to even think that it's a real question because it's not an option. But at the same time, we wouldn't deny people the stories of, you know, their relationships, where they've grown up, how they've interacted with other people, where they've met God in their lives. And you could say, well, in in one sense, is that American? Well, there's aspects of it that are uh, at least specific and specific to their time and place, to their enfleshed reality. And I think we would want to affirm the aspects of those reality that participates in ultimate reality, which would mean we would want to affirm those things which are moving, uh, which are life-giving, which are moving in the direction towards a, a true participation and who God is, that we wouldn't want to talk about that reality as somehow being completely cut off from God in the world. So that when we're talking about like, what is humanity? What does it mean? And this is to Matt's point, like to call uh, Dr. King the greatest American. It's to say that that man's life and what it means only makes sense in the context of him living in this country. And I mean, the sad thing is you could say, well, the, the ideology of America is really what killed him and what made his life living hell at times. And yet then if you think about it on the flip side, the communities that nourished him, that brought him up and that afforded us such a great leader and somebody that had this incredible insight, well, that's, that's, an, that's American in a different sense, in the sense that it's specific, it's in flesh. And so I think you have to be able to affirm one and call the other what it is, and that's a lie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.